there's a Pulitzer Prize winning author, and I can't remember his name, but he, I still have the snippet of advice on my desk about how he prepares to write. He says, first, there's the selection of materials. Then there's the general construction. Then there's the rough sanding. And then there's the fine sanding. The fine sanding of my messages usually comes within minutes of me exiting my study. And so the fine sanding was finished this morning. The message, and you're not going to believe this because it's called Jonah, Jesus, and Paul. You're not going to believe that this message, the materials were already collected before Pam and I and the grandsons went to that production of Jonah in Lancaster in the Sights and Sounds Theater. This came before. But, and I know the ladies are planning a bus trip to the Sight and Sound Theater, and that's to see the production of Jonah on October 9th. And there is an information sign-up sheet at the table. If you plan to attend, let Joanne or Kim know as soon as possible so that the ticket and bus seat can be reserved. Now, I told you I'd do a review on the play Jonah. Well, I was astonished, to say the least, because I thought after so many years of being bored by movies and theatrical productions that I was jaded and nothing could impress me anymore. But I was deeply, profoundly, and astonishingly impressed by the Jonah production in Lancaster, PA. Also with the vision of the man, Glenn Eshelman, who began this whole enterprise by just a small little projector. Now it's a huge stage. There were 2,000 people there from literally from all over the world, from all nations, from all cultures, from all religious backgrounds. You could see men in robes. You didn't know whether Greek Orthodox or rabbis or Buddhists or whatever, but there was everybody was, and I was astonished. I looked over at the grandsons a couple of times and saw the jaw dropping and this will give you something to think about. My grandson Adrian is obsessed with llamas and so the only time he yelled out during the Jonah production was, Llama! And there was actually a llama going up the aisle along with camels and horses and donkeys and the whale going overhead and all the rest of it. But no, it was an astonishing portrait of God's mercy rejoicing over judgment. And it was astonishingly produced and revealed and the actors were just tremendous. So I give it four and eight tenths stars out of five and that's a big rating for me so I do recommend it and I think there's a Christmas version coming up of the birth of Jesus in fact well I won't tell you who showed up at Jonah but it was kind of like a foreview of the second advent so that's my review I'll just say one word astonishing exclamation point and some of you have seen it before I did and you were right but my expectations were exceeded. And so, get there early, though, because 2,000 people, you know. We did have the the minus two-tenths of a star came because we had a running conversation behind us, a church group, evidently of the enthusiastic type, 
who ran an, an endless two-and-a-half-hour conversation with Jonah. I mean, when Jonah said something, they said, yeah, that's right, amen. And I was like, okay, patience, patience. Just made me concentrate a little more. That's the only reason for that little edge of the last star being, you know. So, Matthew chapter 12, Jonah, Jesus, and Paul. Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord. We all have some. And listen to what the Spirit is saying to this church today. The eternal word was incarnated to be instarated, crucified, and raised. And that instaration is to be universalized for the glory of the Father that raised him from the unspeakably shameful crucifixion and death to an indescribable glory will universalize that glory in all creation, in all mankind. That's the plan. In fact, the unstoppable determination of God. Matthew 12, just for a text verse, and again, this is something that came to me before going on the trip. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, We want to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's proclamation. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. Ernst Kosselman, in his study of Romans, page 316, said this, there is no escaping the grasp of God. When one, even when one denies him or attempts to flee from him. That's a characteristically succinct statement by Kosman. In the first case, there's no escaping the grasp of God even when one denies him. I thought of 2 Timothy 2. 13 and 2 12 and 13 if we deny him he denies us meaning he denies us our denial because he cannot deny himself if we become faithless he remains faithful on the second case even when one denies him or attempts to flee from him, attempting to flee from him, and this is a good suggested scripture reading for all of you if you want to read 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. Hosea chapter 11, where God says, how can I forsake Ephraim? How can I forsake him? 
speaking of his boundless love, as well as the whole history of Israel, which is maybe too much of an assignment for right now, and also for the second, Psalm 139, whether, where will I flee from your presence? If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I ascend to the highest heights, you are there. Because Christ descended to the lower parts and ascended to fill up all things with himself. And also illustrating the fact that no one escapes the grasp of God, even when one attempts to flee from him, I recommend the book of Jonah. Then on page 317 of Cosman's Romans study from 1980, regarding Paul's epistle to the Romans as a whole, the whole epistle, he says, the whole epistle of Romans stands under the banner of no person being justified by works and even the pious not entering the kingdom of God on the basis of their piety. And this is also a lesson profoundly taught in the book of Jonah. The prophet Jonah, and I'm reluctant to say the word whale because I believe that there was a denizen of the deep, the possibly still unexplored deep that God called up from the depths to swallow Jonah. And so I'll say the sea creature, as Jesus said, the great fish, and it's possibly there were legends about the Nahualim that the sailors used to fear, and they used to hear the cry of whales, and they called them the Nahualim, and that takes in a whole lot of creatures. The prophet Jonah, after being in the belly of the whale for three days, came forth, and it says by the command of God, God who commanded this denizen to come up from the depths, which Jonah compared to Sheol, and he compared his experience in the belly of this whale as being in Sheol. By the command of God, he was also regurgitated violently. This is all a depiction of the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so Jonah, after being in the belly of the whale for three days, came forth by the command of God to proclaim a message by which all of Nineveh was saved, from the king down to the least. All Nineveh was saved with no exception. All Nineveh, who of all cultures in all times deserved Judgment through the wrath of God. And that, of course, is why Jonah fled, because he was afraid God might be merciful to these people. And he still, after he was merciful, still complained about it. Which only goes to show that eschatologically, the Gentiles and the pagans, the fullness of the Gentiles comes in first, then all Israel, represented by Jonah, will be saved. You add the fullness of the Gentiles, Pleroma, with the totality of Israel, Panta, and you get Pleroma plus Panta equals all humankind. And there's no other way of interpreting it 
that can stand the test of the scripture. So there's a lot going on here in the story of Jonah. After Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale or the sea creature, he came forth by the command of God to proclaim a message. The message was simple. In 40 days, Nineveh will be catastropho. Destroyed? Well, I think maybe more like turned upside down is the word. Catastropho. It's the same word used when Jesus went into the temple. He turned over. He turned upside down the money tables. So there are a lot of people saying, why can we look at God who proclaimed a message, Nineveh will be overthrown, and why weren't they overthrown? Is God's word untrue, or does it have a stipulation unless you repent? I say Nineveh was overthrown because it was turned right side up by God in a message of judgment, but in a mercy that triumphed over judgment. So Jonah's coming forth was unto the salvation for all of Nineveh. Jesus, the son of man, in Matthew 12, three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, in the womb of the earth, came forth unto the salvation of all the world. As Jonah came forth from the belly of the fish unto the salvation of all of Nineveh, so the Son of Man came forth from the belly of the earth unto the salvation of the world. For God sent his Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but so that through him the world would be saved. The message of the gospel arises from his death, and the message of the gospel comes forth with the same power that raised him from death, because the gospel is the power of salvation to all who believe, but not even exclusively to all who believe. As 1 Timothy 4.10 makes clear, but those who do believe are baptized by the Holy Spirit into union with Christ and become the proleptic community, a foretaste of a future universal harvest and a universal community for in Adam I'll die, but in Christ all, the same all, will be made alive. If you want to have the mind of Christ, then you better fill your mind with the Old Testament because that's what his mind was filled with when he came. And we have the mind of Christ. And so he could make this analogy. The message of the gospel arises from Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection from the dead by the glory of the Father in Romans 6, 4. Again, the radical incapacity of the people in Nineveh. Calvin called it total depravity. I like radical incapacity a little better. The radical incapacity of the people of Nineveh, whom God saw in Jonah 4 as not knowing their left from their right, is mirrored in the radical incapacity of the whole world in Adam. Both required an act of divine deliverance, utterly 
from the outside of themselves and in fact from out of the world out of this world the message of Jonah yet in 40 days God will overthrow Nineveh in my view was fulfilled in that old Nineveh was indeed overturned even as our Adamic ontology will be overturned and is being overturned by the message of the cross, by the word of the cross. It was fulfilled in that old Nineveh was indeed overthrown. Again, the word is katastrepho, which means to turn upside down. And so Nineveh was overthrown not by a judgment of retribution, but by a judgment of transformation, a transformative power of conversion brought about by God through Jonah's message which came forth finally after Jonah was brought forth from burial it's funny the things he realized just before the whale regurgitated him and that's really well displayed in, incidentally the guy that played Jonah is very athletic because he had to go through the air and land in some trees on a beach and he had to fall off a ship and you see him, the guy, he's pretty athletic. I didn't know Jonah was that athletic. But when he came forth, just before he did, he realized in Jonah 2.6, salvation is of the Lord meaning salvation is of the Lord exclusively. It's an act of divine deliverance outside of the capacity of mankind. And he offered himself as a sacrifice to God, and then God said, okay, denizen of the deep, spit him up. Now, when he got on the beach, of course, you know he must have looked quite ungodly. What a mess. And it freaked people out. So does the cross. The cross is an ungodly thing. It's a scandalon, and it's intended to be because God chose the ungodly act of crucifixion to be the way that he would justify the ungodly. And that's what God does. God does not believe in total amnesty and total impunity. God believes in justice. God believes in judgment. There is a penalty for wrongdoing. There is a severe gravity to sin. And don't ever get the idea that that's not the case. And let no translation convince you otherwise. But only God could bear the consequences of the evil and did he didn't send his son in a brutal act he sent his son and accompanied his son he did not send his son as accusers say who accuse the gospel he did not send his son to brutalize his son he sent his son and accompanied his son for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and Jesus said my father has not left me alone even though crying out in the cry of dereliction my God my God why have you forsaken me God had not forsaken him God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself 
But that's how deeply Jesus was identified with the sinful thought that God has forsaken his creation or any person in it. It is the height of sinfulness and the worst kind of doctrine that teaches that God forsakes any of his creatures in an endless hell. That's the worst kind of evil thinking that there is on this earth. And it's found in churches. It's found in doctrinal manuals. It's found in people with no imagination, with no understanding of the rule of metaphor, that when Jesus came, he would speak parables, and that the parables were metaphorical and directed toward a poetic imagination that can only be enlivened and vivified by the Holy Spirit. That's why my next intention, and I've already got the rough materials for this, is the parable of the wheat and tares and showing its universality and showing that the judgment that Jesus speaks of ultimately in the separation of the weeds from the wheat is not a separation of some people from other people, but a separation that runs through every human being, the Adamic ontology from the new life in Christ. It's a painful separation. It might even involve weeping and grinding of the teeth. It's a separation of the Adamic existence from the new life in Christ. That's what we are experiencing. That's why Christians suffer in this world while others look on and say what what, what's the deal here that's because the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing continuing in the Adamic ontology but to those of us who are being saved that means being separated from that Adamic ontology to experience the life of Christ we are being separated the word of the cross is the power of God as it's the power of God unto salvation in Romans 1.16, the word of the cross is the power to those who are being saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18, a key verse. In Thessalonica, certain religious opponents of Paul and Silas came forth to slander them and malign them. And this was their statement in Acts 17.6. They said, these men who have turned the world upside down, the word is different, it's anastatao, but translated that way by many translations, turned the world upside down. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. They didn't know what they were saying. Turning the world upside down was in fact turning it right side up. Nineveh was overthrown in that sense. It was turned right side up. It became a nation that it was not before, a nation that worshiped God. And Jonah stayed there for several years and produced what we might call a vast church of pagans. And so it was a forecast of Paul's mission to the pagans as apostle to the pagans. Jonah had many churches among the Ninevites. Paul, many churches among the pagans. This is one of them. This is one of them. So Nineveh was overthrown. 
in that sense. It was turned right side up by the agency of the Lord who rectifies the ungodly. Rectification is better than justification. I used to like a show called Justified because there was a lot of good gunfights in it and stuff. But then there was a show after Justified called Rectify. And I said, what are they trying to do here? Theology? Well, rectify is a better word than justify because it means to set what's terribly wrong right. That's what God's justice does. It sets what's terribly wrong wonderfully right. That's God's judgment. Ask Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pagans. Ask him. So this Nineveh was turned right up, right side up by the agency of the Lord by whom salvation comes. The agency of the Father who rectifies the ungodly. It's the only thing he has to do with the ungodly. Rectify the ungodly. If you're God, it's what you do. If you're God, you make things out of things that are not. You create things out of nothing. Ex nihilo. If you're God, you take that which doesn't exist and make it exist. If you're God, you raise the dead. If you're God, you justify the ungodly. But none of us is God. That's an action that takes place outside of the realm of human reason even. Which is why the cross is such a stupid thing to the Greek philosopher. And such a scandal to the religious Jew or the religious Christian or the churchgoer. Take Jews and Greeks in Paul's writings and turn it into churchgoers and agnostics. Or skeptics. And it's the same thing. They do the same thing. The word Jews when used in a negative context in the New Testament. Is never intended to be anti-Semitic. Or even directed toward the Jews as a people. But toward a certain religious segment. Of opponents of Jesus Christ. They represent a certain religiosity. And a piety that thinks it's getting into the kingdom by its piety. And that's not just Jewish people, but people all over the place, including some people at the play who were saying, that's right, that's right, when they were talking about judgment. And they didn't know what to do when there was no judgment. There was only mercy. They didn't know how to respond. Oh, that's the message. Mercy triumphing over judgment. Well, it's a tough realization, but I like it. Jonah realized while in the belly of the whale that salvation is of the Lord, Jonah 2.6, thinking probably of Psalm 3.8. And as Fleming Rutledge wrote in her book called The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ, which is the best I've ever read, and I've read a lot of good stuff on the death of Christ and understanding his crucifixion. I've never read anything this good so far. She wrote in her book, on page 124, the message of the cross of Jesus Christ is that only the creator of the universe can make perfect justice come about in the world that he created. And that he has done so in the body of his own son. And that he will do so in the day of the Lord. 
Then she quotes Genesis 18.25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He does right. In an act of divine deliverance, a universal act of divine deliverance. That's how God does right. There is also in Jonah an adumbration or a foreshadowing of the Apostle Paul. Galatians 2.20, I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in this mortal body, I live by the faithfulness, by a shared participation in the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As Romans 4.25 says, he was handed over and therefore gave himself over for our sins. And he was resurrected for our justification. Our sins, the sins of the whole world. Our justification, the rectification of the whole world. Don't get too westernized about this. Don't get too individualistic about this gospel. God sent his son to save the world, not just a few lucky individuals who decide to believe. So, there's a foreshadowing of Paul. So there's a connection to our BCP message here, our Better Call message, called Paul message. Because in Jonah, we have Romans 6.4, buried with him, Christ, in baptism, raised by the glory of the Father, in Colossians 2.12, etc. And we also have an adumbration or a foreshadowing of Paul's mission to the Gentiles. Jonah went on a ship bound for Tarshish. And Tarshish was a Phoenician port in Spain. He said, take me as far away from Nineveh in the opposite direction, west, as you can. So he bought a ticket to ride. He bought a... Never mind. I have the Beatles station on my Sirius now, so I get confused. Not really. I can separate the Beatles from the Lord. Believe it or not, I can separate them. But Tarshish was a Phoenician port in Spain founded by a Carthaginian colony, according to the Eastern Bible Dictionary, and was the farthest western harbor of the Tyrian sailors, or sailors from Tyre or Phoenicia. It was to this port that Jonah's ship was about to sail from Joppa. Of course, some things went on between then. A great storm, and Jonah said, throw me overboard because I'm causing the storm. My God is not letting me get away. And so this connection exists between the missionary to the pagans of the Old Testament, Jonah, and the apostle to the pagans in the New Testament, Paul. In fact, Paul was also intending to go to Spain. That's the whole point he makes in Romans 15, 24. I intend to go to Spain. I'm going to Spain, and I'm coming through you. He's hoping, in fact, to get a little support from them to go to Spain to preach the gospel where it hadn't been preached before. So there's an adumbration there. Paul was also intending to go to Spain. Not to escape the will of God like Jonah. There's the law of dissimilarity along with the law of similarity. But to do quite the opposite. Not to escape the will of God, but rather to, quote, evangelize where Christ has not been named. To evangelize where Christ has not been named. 
Jonah says, I'm going to Spain to keep from having to evangelize the pagans. Paul says, I'm going to Spain to evangelize more of the pagans, the Gentiles, in fulfillment of Isaiah 52:15, which says, those who had no report of him will see. You can put that down for everyone else who has never heard, including the dead that have never heard. Those who had no report of him will see. Remember what Revelation 1-7 says. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And that will result in conversion according to Zechariah 12-10 and 2 Corinthians 7-10. They who had no report of him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. Paul was also riddled in his mind, saturated in his mind with the Old Testament scriptures. Kids back then in Israel spent as much time looking at the scriptures as kids today look at their devices to play games on. They spent that much time immersed in the scriptures. Oh, if that would only happen again. If, if only the exposure to the scriptures would equal the exposure to electronic devices in children of this generation. You cannot even imagine the effective redemptive results of such a generation. But that's why, again, if you're going to have the mind of Christ, then you have to have your mind saturated with the Old Testament, which he did by age 12, even. He was wowing the doctors of the law, blowing away the PhDs with his questions in the temple at age 12. I I don't even want to, and there's an exception of the children here, but I don't want to ask most kids What do you think of Jonah? Who? Oh, yeah, there's a boy named Jonah in my class. Well, did you know he was swallowed by a giant sea creature? No. I'm going to have to ask him. Again, the eternal word was incarnated to be instarated. And when he was incarnated, he embodied the whole body of humanity. And when he was instarated or crucified, He embodied the whole of humanity. And when he was raised from the dead, he embodied the whole of humanity. In fact, the whole of creation. For the word became flesh. And in his flesh, he bore the sins of the world. So, the eternal word was incarnated to be instarated. And his instaration, remember that word, because that's pretty much sums up my contribution, my small and tiny contribution to theology, the instaration. The word comes from a root, actually a Sanskrit root originally, stau, which came into the Greek as stauros, which equals the cross, stauros. Paul said, I was instarated with Christ. Instaration is something that is going to happen to all of creation. Crucified with Christ Raised with Christ, because you can never separate or segregate or in any way cause to be different between the resurrection and the cross. Christ crucified and raised. It's one event, and it hangs together because the resurrection is the validation and the vindication. And I think that's what is being spoken of in First Timothy 3.16. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, and it goes on to say, vindicated by the Spirit. The crucifixion was vindicated by the resurrection. 
by the Spirit of God raising Jesus from the dead, by the glory of the Father, which is the Spirit of God, raising him from the dead. The Holy Spirit is none other than the Spirit of the crucified Messiah. And so if you're in the Holy Spirit, you never forget the death of Jesus or the means of his death, and you never stop identifying with it. Your life becomes cruciform. Your life becomes cross-shaped. There are things in your life that you may bear that are griefs and burdens, and you may not be allowed to cast them away. They will be with you. They are part of what we are allowed to suffer with Christ. And there are things that Paul had in him. There was a grief that he said, I bear constantly. And he said, I bear witness in the Holy Spirit about it. And there are, of course, many burdens, unrealistic ones and false burdens that we can cast upon the Lord. But our lives become instarrated. So again, the eternal word was incarnated to be instarrated. The Jews, which were religious people, not the Jews as a people, the Jews, Paul said, churchgoers, we could say today, seek a sign. The whole story is told in 1 Corinthians 1, 17 to 31. Greeks, which we would say today, non-churchgoers, skeptics, agnostics of all stripes, proud atheists, all the rest of them, they seek philosophical or today scientific insight. God gives them both the word of the cross because he's chosen through the foolishness of preaching to save them. That means that the preaching carries with it the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power of salvation. So those who are perishing, it's foolish. That means they're continuing in the Adamic ontology. It seems stupid to them. But those who are being saved or separated from the Adamic ontology to enjoy the life of Christ, to them, to us, it's the power of God. The cross marks the end of the present evil age. Galatians 1.4, Galatians 6.14. The cross marks the end of the domain of sin and death of the flesh and even of Torah as it's been hijacked by the flesh and sin. It is the end of mankind's existence in the old Adam. The cross is the beginning of the messianic age because it cannot be separated from the resurrection, which is its validation and vindication. Those who recognize the power of God in the word of the cross and I think that's many of you. Those who recognize the power of God in the word of the cross know that the cross was an ungodly thing. It was a scandalon. S-K-A-N-D-A-L-O-N. Galatians 5.11. Paul said that those who were against him, and they were preachers, many times Jewish Christian preachers refused to preach the cross because they wanted to avoid the scandal and they wanted to avoid the offense that comes when you preach this ungodly means and method of crucifixion, that salvation comes through a crucified man. 
The salvation is utterly and totally from God, from outside of human expectations, defying every human expectation. In other words, nobody would have ever thought of the cross as the means of salvation. Nobody would have ever thought of it. It's the wisdom of God. So the Jews, churchgoers, seek a sign. Greeks, skeptics, seek philosophical insight. God gives them both the word of the cross, then and now, which to those who are continuing in the Adamic ontology proudly, because there's a good side to that, a strong side to that, they're perishing. But to those who are being saved, that's the act of being separated from the Adamic ontology into the life of Christ, which is a process, and it hurts sometimes. To those of us that are being saved, it's the power of God. The cross marks the end of the present evil age. It is the end of mankind's existence in the old Adam. It's the end of it. It's the beginning of the messianic age because it cannot be separated from the resurrection, which is the validation and vindication of it. Those who recognize the power of God in the word of the cross know that the cross was an ungodly thing, an unspeakable, shameful way to be put to death. A scandalon. But it happened in order that God would rectify the ungodly, justify, set right the ungodly, the unrighteous. And let me let you in on a secret. That's everybody except for Christ in the human race. He, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous ones. He was a propitiation for the sins, not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. For those of you that think that election means the rejection of most of mankind and the acceptance of a few lucky people like yourself, you're dead wrong. He was the propitiation, the satisfaction, not for your sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. It's a tough pill to swallow for some people. I don't know why. Well, I guess I do. We're ungodly. Jesus was handed over by, listen carefully. I'm going to wind this down soon. Jesus was handed over by religious men to godless men. He was handed over by men of the law to men without law. Acts 2.23 says, to be killed. He was handed over by pious religious men to godless lawless men to be crucified, put to death in the most shameful, horrific, and scandalous way, hanging naked, abused in every possible way by passers-by from all over the world. For they had been coming to Jerusalem from everywhere to celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Failing to see that the bread of life for the whole world was hanging on a tree. 
writhing in unspeakable agony to the point where he said, I am a worm and no man in the estimation of those around him. Jesus was handed over by religious men to godless men, by men of the law to men without law to be killed. But this was all according to the predetermination of God who gave his son and gave himself with his son to endure all the evil that men do, all the evil that men with the law do, all the evil that men without the law do. And yes, ladies, men and women. Those who belong to Christ crucify the flesh, says Paul in Galatians 5.24, with its otherwise irresistible impulses. The impulse of the flesh is irresistible even to the stoic because it's not just a sexual or sensual urge which some can resist better than others. It is the urge of the flesh to resist God, to resist grace, to resist the cross, and to vaunt itself against its neighbor and elevate itself in arrogance against its creator. That's an impulse that no Shaolin monk can control. In fact, the meditations of the monk are often the very expression of antagonism and hostility to God. And I'm not talking about specifically the Shaolins. I like the show Kung Fu too. I just happened to see a bunch of Shaolin monks the other day at a rest stop. And I wanted to say to them, do you know? Never mind, I wouldn't have done that. I was going to say, I was going to say, I thought you guys were the traffic guys because you're all in orange. But anyways, uh, those who belong to Christ crucify the flesh, capital F-L-E-S-H, because it's a power that can't be resisted with its otherwise irresistible impulses. And they do so by walking in the spirit in Galatians 5.16 compared with Romans 8.4. The spirit of the crucified Christ. For it's not human might or even military power, but by my spirit, says Yahweh, that the impossible mountain before us is removed. The impossible mountain being the impulse of the flesh. Zechariah 4.6. Those who belong to Christ acknowledge that they were crucified with him. And they live their lives in these mortal bodies by a participation in the Son of God's fidelity. It isn't our fidelity. It isn't our faithfulness. It isn't our life. It's Christ who lives in us. A life that's only possible by the power of the Spirit of the crucified Lord of glory during this course of the second divine mission wherein the Spirit of God manifests the glory of the Father that raised the Son and the glory of the Son that's destined to be universal in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, in connection with Genesis 1.3 in connection with Habakkuk 2.14 a manifestation that will ultimately be universal. The cross is the overthrow of Nineveh. Before the cross happened, it was the overthrow of Nineveh by its transformation of the total population of Nineveh. The cross is the overthrow of the world 
by the transformation of the world. Jonah, three days and nights in the belly of a sea creature from the unmeasured depths, was spit up by the command of God to proclaim a message by which all of Nineveh was to be saved. Jesus, three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, the earth which is the Lord's, was raised up by the glory of the Father, resulting in the salvation of the whole world, every single one, from the greatest to the least, from the VIP to the peasant like me, saved. And again, with regard to Paul's mission to the Gentiles, and that's where we're going, better call Paul application, and the salvation of all the Gentiles and all of Israel, Ilaria Ramelli writes, Romans 11 is paramount to assess Paul's universalism. In an eschatological framework, Paul states, Romans 11, 23 to 26, that God has the power of grafting them, that is Israel, again. The hardening of a part of Israel, and I put Mark 3, 5 in there along with Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. The hardening of a part of Israel is taking place until the totality of the nations comes in. Please notice that. Not the fullness, the totality. Play Roma means totality. Accent here. Pleroma means full complement. It means a full totality. So the hardening of the part of Israel is taking place until the totality of the nations, Gentiles, pagans, comes in, enters the kingdom of God. And then all pass Israel will be saved. Pleroma of the nations plus pas Israel equals all humanity. And Israel always understood that its salvation was the salvation of all that God made, of all of creation. And then she closes by, and I will close soon. For God has closed all, this time pan, P-A-N-T-E-S, pantes, God has enclosed all pantes, that's all without exception, under disobedience, make that pantas, P-A-N-T-A-S, under disobedience, so to have mercy upon all. What Ninevite did you skip over? A really bad one? No, I had mercy on all of them. What human being are you going to skip over? Some of the worst kinds of sinners? Let me tell you something. Under Stalin's reign, which was worse than the Nazi reign, one of the persons that lived under Stalin said, every one of us under that oppression lived betraying one another. He said, the line runs through all of us. You can't just point to certain evil people in the world and say they should be consigned to Gehenna. The line runs through all of us. So when the wheat and the tares are separated, that's a damnic ontology being separated from the life in Christ in all of us. Then the righteous will shine as the sun, and the righteous will be 
all humankind. That's the universal aspect of the, every parable Jesus spoke had a universal aspect to it. He's the creator of the universe. Of course it did. And we'll get to that in the parable, the so-called parable of the wheat and tares. So in true closing, I lied the first two times. And then immediately acknowledged my sin and rebounded. In Jonah, the Ninevites are converted first. And then Jonah, who represents Israel, because in the last chapter, remember, he was mad at God. He waited until that end of the 40th day, and nothing happened, except the people started to worship his God. And he says, and then he said, I, I need some shade. It's, it's sunny. And then God made a plant grow over him and shaded him. And the next morning, the plant withered and died. It's same as a, as a miracle as it, the creation of God. It withered and died. And Jonah cried to God and said, you ruined my plant. And God said to Jonah, you're worried about a plant when 120,000 people just got saved who didn't know their left from their right? Yahweh confronted him. He saw Yeshua. He saw the glory of Jesus Christ right there. And he was converted. But he was only converted representing all Israel in the eschatological day. Only after all the Ninevites had come into the kingdom. He couldn't get there by his piety. And like the parable of the workers, the Ninevites came in at the last minute of the day and they were given the same wages as people that were working really hard in the field all day long. Jonah just didn't get it until the, all the Ninevites had come in. So when all the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, the totality, pleroma, so then all Israel will be then saved. That's the order in Jonah. That's the order in the eschatology. That's the order in the predetermined plan of God. So Jonah was converted from his resantamon after God spared Nineveh and then confronted him over the loss of a plant that sheltered him. And this is a presentiment. We go from resantamon to presentiment. This is a presentiment of the eschatological salvation of all Israel after the totality of the nations enters the kingdom of God. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity once again to stare at the image of the Lord in the mirror of the word and to be changed from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord, not by our pious efforts, not by our efforts under the law, not by our efforts under the New Testament teachings, but by the spirit of the crucified Messiah. This message was designed by you, predetermined by you, to change us into another degree of likeness to your son. And we thank you for it in his name.